You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there with us now. We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 tonight, continuing to make our way through the Old Testament, going straight through here on Wednesday nights. We find ourselves studying the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, here we find the children of Israel right up against the promised land. After 40 years, they're finally about to enter in. And Moses is taking this time because he isn't going to be going with them. He's taking this time to give them a refresher, a reminder of the law and and of the commandments of God and the things that they needed to know as they are now entering the land, this new generation. Because the old generation, the first generation, had died in the wilderness. And this was uh, a young and excited group of people, but they needed to know God's Word. And, and Moses wasn't going with them, so he was going to pass it on to them and, and lay that foundation in their life. And that's so important that we have the foundation of the Word of God in our lives. And so it says, in chapter 6, verse 1, Now this is the commandment, And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. Of course, he's referring to chapter 5 where Moses went over the Ten Commandments again. And and he, he reminded them of the Ten Commandments that he received there on Mount Sinai. And so he's saying, these are the commandments and these are the statutes, the judgments which God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, notice it says, this is the commandment, verse 1. The Hebrew is emphatic here. Moses is calling attention to the commandment. And in the following verses, God is going to reduce the law to one ruling, overarching principle. One commandment which will encompass all the other commandments. And and that commandment is going to be to love God. It's going to be very simple. We're going to look at that here in a few minutes. But he says that your days may be prolonged, that it may be well with you. There was a lot at stake here in terms of Israel's obedience. And there's a lot at stake in terms of our obedience. In, In terms of our taking God's Word seriously and applying it to our life, there's a lot at stake. Just like they would be blessed if they obeyed it, and they would be cursed if they didn't. It was very simple. And so too, in our lives, we have a choice. We talked about it on Sunday, that in a sense, you're living a very dangerous life by being someone who is coming and listening to the Word of God. You're putting yourself in a very precarious situation. Because you have a choice now of what you're going to do with that. You cannot be neutral. You're hearing the Word, and therefore we are accountable to the Word. Accountable to do it. When you know it, then you have to do it. 
And that's what God is saying here, that they should be careful to observe these things, that it may be well with them. And if they do observe them, if they do heed them, if they do put these things into practice, man, they're going to be blessed. But if they don't, it's not going to be good. And the same principle applies in our life. That the Word of God is not passive. It's meant to be put into practice. We can't just go, well, that's really cool, but I'm not going to do anything with it. You don't have that option. I don't have that option. The Word of God is living and it's meant to be put into practice. And he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to talk about what this great commandment is. He says, Hear, O Israel. And so, listen, give attention. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so this great commandment is to love the Lord your God. This phrase, these verses, Hear, O Israel. In Hebrew, it is known as the Shema, which means to hear. And it's the classic Hebrew confession, which a strict Jew will recite in the morning and in the evening, the Shema. It's describing who God is and what our duty toward Him is. Who God is. He is the Lord and He is one. And our duty is to love Him with everything that we have. Now, it's interesting because it says that the Lord is one. And of course, the, the Jew and, and the, uh, the Hebrew people did not believe in what we would call the Trinity. They did not believe that, that God exists in three persons. Of course, we believe in one God, but we believe scripturally that He exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Jew did not believe that. And part of the reason they didn't believe that is because of this verse, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But even they, if they're honest with themselves, know that there's something very mysterious about this verse. Because the word one here in the Hebrew is the word akkad. And Moses, as he's writing this, has a choice of what kind of words that he could use. And of course, he's going to be very intentional when writing this. And he uses the word akkad, which is a compound unity, meaning that there is oneness, but there's plurality within that oneness. And Moses used that word on purpose. He also used the word here when it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word God in the Hebrew is Elohim. Now again, Moses could have used different words. He could have used the word El, which would be a singular God. But he used the word Elohim, which again is a compound unity. And so from the very beginning, if you go back to Genesis, the word Elohim is used. We find uh, words like we being used when God says we will come down and confuse their language. And, and you see God using plural pronouns to describe himself. And you see here Moses using a compound unity of Akkad and Elohim. There's reasons for that because we believe in the, in the Trinity. We believe in the triunity of God, not three gods. Let's not mistake that. We believe in one God who is existent in three persons. Now, how do we explain that? We don't. 
Even the, the best illustrations uh, end up sounding very childish. You know, the, the, the steam and the water and ice, you know, or the egg has a, a shell and it has um, a yolk and it has the white, you know, and, and, and the apple with the skin and the meat and the core. I mean, they're just very weak illustrations. We have to, to basically say, look, our God is a mysterious God. And there is some mysticism about the Bible and about Christianity. Things that we don't understand and that we will never understand. How did God take on human flesh and not cease to be God and yet continue to, to be God and, and be a man? How is that possible? How is He not 50% man and 50% God? We can fathom that. Some kind of a mutant. But we can't fathom how God could take on human flesh and still be 100% God and yet 100% man. We can try to explain it, and yet even the best theologian and the best thinker still comes out with a lot of questions. And you know what? Questions are okay. We believe by faith. We, we search the Scriptures. We try to find answers. But we are still left with a God who's beyond our ability to understand. We're still left with a God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so there's some mysticism about Jesus, about the Trinity, about the Bible. And it's okay. And, and you know what? Uh, there's, there's theologians who, who spend lifetimes putting everything into nice little columns. Systematic theology, right? And we believe this about Jesus and we believe this about the Holy Spirit and we believe this about the Bible and this about the church and we have a theology for all of those things. And you know what? There's a place for that and it's good to know what we believe and it's good to have a theology because we all have one. Theology is your belief system about God and you all have a theology. But systematic theology is only so good as our ability to fathom God. And we can't fathom Him. We can't comprehend Him. We cannot put Him into our little box. He doesn't fit on a spreadsheet with lists of corresponding verses to confirm and to substantiate what we believe. And so, the Shema, speaking to us that God is one and yet He's also three. A compound unity. And He tells us what we need to do with the Lord. When we're struck with the reality of God, and we've all come to that place, maybe you're on that journey right now, where you're you're struck with the existence of God, and then what do I do with that? You recognize, you hear the voice of the Lord. Hear, O Israel. Maybe He would say to you, Hear, O, put your name in there. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you're struck with the reality of God, and then this is what you need to do with that reality. You shall love Him with everything you are. Notice He doesn't say give your money. He doesn't say go to church. He doesn't say read your Bible. He says love God. See, that's where it starts. It's got to start with your heart. It's got to start with your mind, with comprehending who God is. It's got to start with saying, Jesus, take my life. I love you. I love the fact that you love me. You see, we love God because He first loved us. 
And then, you guys, all of that other stuff that we often want to put first, the giving of our resources and our time, going to church, reading the Bible, fellowshipping with people, telling people about Jesus, all of that stuff is going to be a natural outflow of loving God. It's just like when when you're happily married and and you have a picture of your wife or or you you talk about your husband and it's because you love them and you you give to them because you love them They're like your children you talk about your kids and you have pictures of your kids and and you you're just so excited to to share those with with other people it's not drudgery it's not like yeah you know i've got to go do this for my kid you know it's just a hassle it, it's just such a blessing because you love your kids so much. See, that's where it starts. It starts with, with love. And see, that was the problem with, with the church at Ephesus as Jesus writes to them in Revelation chapter 2. They were doing all kinds of things for God, and yet they had left their first love. And so the things they were doing were duty without devotion. And we can easily get into that place. But our primary goal, our primary responsibility in life, you guys, is to love God. And if you've come to a place where there's a lack of passion and fervor and excitement, you need to come back to that place where you left your first love. Come back to loving God and everything else will be an outflow of that. He wants us to love Him. Notice that God commands us to love Him. It's not an option. It's a command for us to love Him. And He can rightfully make that command. See, I can't command you to love me because I don't deserve it. But God deserves our love. And we love Him because He first loved us. He demonstrated His love to us. And so He commands that we love Him. Now, we don't have to. But when we don't, our life will be miserable, meaningless, empty, and in the end will be destruction. And so we can reject God, certainly, but He commands us to love Him. And it's an amazing thing to do because when you love God, it changes your life. It changes everything. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You guys, don't make the mistake of having an intellectual relationship with the Lord where it becomes about knowledge where it becomes about words on a page, where it becomes about information. God wants to capture your heart. He wants to capture your mind, certainly. And you know what? In the church, man, we've we've done a disservice to people when we give them the indication that God wants us to check our brain at the door. And a lot of times we do a very good job at, at saving people's souls, but not at saving their minds. God wants us to use our mind, otherwise He wouldn't have given us one. He wants you to use your brain. He wants you to to read and to study and to know what you believe and why you believe it. He wants you to exercise your brain and 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 when you exercise it you'll you'll find that you can actually get smarter. You have the capability to expand your understanding of things. And you know what? The study of life and the study of this world and the study of of everything out there is in reality something that brings us back to God because this is God's creation. And so 
It's, there's nothing wrong with, with being learned about these things and wanting to know things. Don't check your brain at the door of Christianity. God doesn't want you to do that. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your mind, Jesus said in the Gospels. But here He says, allow these words to penetrate your heart. And so it, it will start in your mind and, and you begin to understand these things and you begin to conceptualize these things. But then it's got to penetrate our hearts. Otherwise, it becomes a very distant and cold relationship. Jesus wants to capture our hearts. He wants us to be engaged emotionally and passionately. He says, you shall teach them diligently these commands, this this one command for sure, to love God. Teach these things diligently to your children. And that is the most important thing you can do as a parent, to pass on the importance of a relationship, of a love of God. Teach these things diligently. Notice, it's going to take effort, parents. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be something that you have to work at. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Basically what this saying, what this is saying is, make this a lifestyle of passing Jesus on to your kids. Taking advantage of real life happenings and pointing them to Jesus. Spending time with your kids. And when you're doing that, give them Jesus. Take them to the store. Take them on trips. Take them to work. Whatever. When they wake up in the morning, when they go to sleep at night, when you're sitting around the table, you're passing Jesus on to them. It's a lifestyle. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, the Jews are very literal people. And so they took this to mean literally that we are going to bind this on our hands and put this on our minds. And so they made these little boxes that they called phylacteries. And by the time Jesus came on the scene in the first century, these phylacteries had gotten huge. Because the bigger your phylactery, the more spiritual you were. So they were walking around with these giant boxes on their heads that would have these Scriptures put into them so that literally they were binding the Word of God to their head and to their hands. And it's interesting that, that Satan is going to steal from this model as he's going to have people take the mark of the beast upon their hand and upon their head. But God wasn't telling them to literally tie the Bible to their hands and head. What He was saying is that it should be a part of their lives, that it should be something that they're thinking about and meditating upon. And we need to be doing that. We need to be reminding ourselves of the Word of God, being in the Word personally and then meditating upon it throughout the day so that God can use His Word to penetrate our hearts and to, to draw us unto Himself. That's what He means here. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And again, they literally did this. They would have big boxes on their doorposts and they would put the Shema, this Scripture, in that box. And again, what he's saying is just always be mindful of the Word of God. But I think it's a good thing to to hang up Scriptures in your house and, and to put Scriptures that you want to be thinking and meditating upon on your mirror, in your car, places that you're going to see them. But what he's really saying is just 
be mindful of the Word. Don't neglect the Word. Don't neglect God's commands for you. Verse 10, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Now I want you to notice verse 10 when it says, So it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land. Not if, but when. He made this promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob many, many years before. And you know what? It's taken a while for them to get to this place. But God is going to bring His Word to pass. God is going to come through on His promises. And He'll do that in your life. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that the work that God has started in you, He will bring to completion. God finishes His work. Now many of you, like me, are good at starting things and maybe not so good at finishing things. And I've started a myriad of books that I don't finish. Some of them just aren't worthy of being finished. They're not very good, so you kind of put them away. But, you know, sometimes you get busy. Or you start a, a, a project and it's still in the garage. Or maybe you've got half your house painted from three years ago. You know, whatever. There's lots of things that we start. Businesses. I always think about the, the time I got real excited to do some more college and I was going to do it online. It was like five years ago. And, and I paid for it all in advance and, you know, I finished like one or two of the classes. And it's, it's still there, you know. All that work, it just got overwhelming. We're good at starting things, not so good at finishing things, but God finishes what He started and He'll bring us through like He did the children of Israel. When God brings you into the land. Let that be an encouragement to you tonight. And he says, when he gives you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Man, there is a real tendency for us when things are going well, when, when prosperity is happening in our life, when God is blessing us like He's going to bless them, there's a real tendency for us to forget God. Because we don't need to pray. i got lots of, of money in the bank. I don't need to trust God right now. And what God is, is saying is, look, when you enter the promised land and you begin to partake of these things that I've given you, and remember that I gave them to you, you didn't dig out these wells. You didn't build these houses. You didn't plant these vineyards. I did that. You guys, when, when the Lord is blessing you, remember that it's the Lord that's blessing you. It's not your ingenuity. It's not your great business skills. It's not your talents. It's God. He's blessing you. He's given you the ability. And you need to give back to Him. And you need to be mindful of Him. And not allow yourself to forget Him when things are going well. We have a, a real tendency to, to be on fire for the Lord when things aren't going so hot. When we need money, when we need Him to touch our lives physically, when somebody in our family is, is really sick and maybe they're about to die, when we need a job, all of a sudden, Jesus becomes a real focus. All of a sudden, people start showing up at church real regularly. Remember after 9-11, there was like two weeks where churches were just packed. And that's our tendency. 
But then when things get back to normal and, and, and God answers our prayers and God blesses our life, then we forget about Him again. And you can see that pattern in the children of Israel. Things are going well. They forget about God. They do their own thing. Then God judges them. Then all of a sudden they cry out to God. Lord, forgive us. God, save us. Deliver us. And then God answers their prayer. And then they forget about Him. And it was this vicious cycle. You guys learn from them. We need to to look at their model and say, I don't want to get into that pattern with God. I want to love God no matter what state I'm in. As Paul said in Philippians, no matter what state I'm in, he said, I'm content whether I'm abounding or whether I'm abased or I'm lacking. In Proverbs chapter 30, you don't need to turn there, but I think this is a a great reminder for us. Proverbs 30 verse 8, the the writer has a real good handle on, on this. He says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, Who is the Lord? Times of prosperity. Forget about God. When I'm full, say, Who's God? I don't need God. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the, of the Lord. And so the, the writer's saying, look, God, just keep me in that place where I'm not like starving to death, but where I also have to trust you. That's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. And that's why the Lord has most of us in that place. There's very few people that can handle wealth, and that's why God doesn't give it to very many people. Because it ruins us. And so be careful. Be careful what you're longing for. Be careful what you're seeking after. Because... It certainly doesn't bring all of the things that we think it does. There's a real blessing in just being in that place where we're just relying on the Lord. He says, verse 13, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. Idols. We need to abstain from idolatry. And idolatry is basically... The worship of anything other than God. When something other than Jesus is on the throne of your life. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, to cast out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. And so, this is what God would desire of them, to enter the land, to be a part of that culture, but not to allow the culture to be a part of them. To not allow themselves to fall into idolatry, to fall into the habits and the practices of the people. They were to go in and they were to possess the land and they were to honor God while doing so. And you guys, we live we live in a, in a post-Christian world. We live in a society and a culture that calls evil good and good evil. We live in a culture that hates Jesus. But we live in a culture that needs Jesus. And so if we want to make a difference, we need to be different. We, we need to, to have a life that is attractive to people. 
Because Jesus is attractive. And it doesn't mean that we need to be weird. It doesn't mean that we need to be all freaked out about the world. It means we need to love people. We need to love this world. We need to embrace the, the, the things in our culture that are redeemable and that are lovely and that are from God and things that we can use to, to bring people to Jesus. Not everything in the world is bad. And there's lots of awesome things in the culture that we can use to draw people to Jesus, whether it be art or music, sports, there's books, there's many things that God can use to capture the hearts of people. And so we have to be in this world, but not of this world. We need, though, to be in this world. Not in our own little Christian subculture, not in our own little bubble where everything sort of revolves uh, around us and around our little clique. No, we, we need to, to be open to how God wants to use us, going in and conquering the land, if you will, fulfilling our mission as believers which is to bring people to Jesus. And he says, When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? And notice again, he doesn't say if your son, but when your son. Your kids will ask you questions. And when they do, you need to to give them answers. You need to share Jesus with them. You need to be able to pass on your testimony. That's what he's saying here. Man, pass on your story to your kids. Tell them about your past. Tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. Tell them about your Egypt, as He says here. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. Hey, that describes our lives. We were slaves of the devil in our flesh. That's what Egypt was, is the flesh. And God delivered them out of that. And God has delivered us. And we can share that with our kids. How the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And we, we talk about Jesus. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes. Great and severe against Egypt. Pharaoh and all his household. Then He brought us out from there. That He might bring us in to give us the land of which He swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God for our good always. That He might preserve us alive as it is to this day, then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. And so, man, passing it on to our kids and to the next generation. And you know what? Some of you are past that time. Maybe you you think, man, I wish I could go back and I wish I could do things differently. And, and we can't go back. Like the Chinese proverb says, the, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is today. Hey, it would have been nice if you planted trees 20 years ago, but you can't go back. And so today is a day. And maybe you have grandkids or nephews or nieces or neighbors, little kids running around the neighborhood or kids at church, and you can begin to pour into them. Or maybe your kids are seven, eight, nine years old, and you wish you had begun pouring into them when they were one and two years old, but you know what? You can't go back. And so now you start with them today and you begin to, to share Jesus with them and, and give them the legacy of God and of loving God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all their strength. There's no greater thing than we can do.
You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.